Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the cybersecurity podcast where we shine a light on the people who are shaping the world of cybersecurity today and find out a little bit about their journey so far by diving into the events and situations that have shaped their career to find out what drives them and who inspires them. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by John Fokker, an internationally recognized cybercrime expert with extensive leadership experience in the world of cybersecurity through law enforcement, military, and industry. John is currently head of threat intelligence and principal engineer at Trellix, where his team empowers customers, industry partners, and global law enforcement efforts with 24 seven mission critical insights on the ever changing threat landscape. So welcome by the podcast, John. Thanks, James. Uh, very happy to be invited. That's great. And whereabouts are you joining us from today? I am actually in sunny Amsterdam right now. So, John, how did you first become interested in technology? Oh, I have to dig deep now. Like taking apart electronic devices and screwing them open and trying to put them back together, which never worked, by the way. So my parents were very quick to say, like, well, we have broken machines. You can play with that. I kind of piqued the interest how things worked. Um... Uh, so that kind of sparked the interest. And then when I was, I think in my early teenage, teenage years, there was the first personal computer that got introduced to the house. I think a lot of people in the industry can uh, have that similar relationship, especially if you're a little bit older uh, and you're not like an internet native. So it came, yep. became introduced to your house. I remember it was a, uh, a 286 uh, computer black and white screen and I could play a couple of video games or computer games. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting stuff. Uh, sure enough, I downloaded diverse fires as well. So I got into a nice fight with my parents and they said, well, if you want to have a computer, you better save up for it. So I started a uh, paper round uh, to save up for my first computer. And that kind of piqued the interest. And then I eventually uh, after high school, I started computer science. And then going on from studying computer science, you didn't go straight into the technology industry as such. You actually, I believe, joined the uh, Dutch Marines. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I had kind of a little detour. Um, not that there was anything wrong with computer science. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, specialized in network engineering. Um, um, but computer security wasn't really a thing at the time. Obviously, there is there was some, but it wasn't as big of a focal point um, as it is now, even forensics. And um, I was working at a telco provider in the Netherlands. That was my internship, and I kind of transitioned into a, uh, into a short job. Um, but I was one of the few people that went there either by bike or running and was very active. And I was like, yeah, John, do you really want to spend your whole career behind the computer, or do you want to do something else? Um, and eventually that led me to, uh, I had some friends that were in the Marine Corps and, uh, um, in a moment, uh, I signed up and I went to the, uh, to the bureau to be tested and I got approved and I was like, before I know, and I was in basic training. So it was a completely different story. And when you went into the Marine Corps, did you get involved in anything on the technology side or was it just purely traditional Marine Corps activities? No, 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 no. No, that's that's very that's very funny because I did study computer science. I did have a lot of like knowledge about things, but at the same time, I was like, no, I wanted to do other things. Um, so I joined, uh, followed the trainings, got deployed to Afghanistan, came back, uh, applied for uh, certain units, uh, which are um, 
like more specialized units, uh, did their selection course, passed, spent most of my uh, working career there, doing a lot of cool stuff, uh, traveling all over the globe, jumping out of airplanes, uh, going to some not so nice places, but also nice places. As a lot of people say, you yeah, shoot guns and blow stuff up. But uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, with, well, I didn't do a lot. There was no focal point on cyber or on computer security. But in my own time, I still maintained some of the skills, never to the level that you could do it like professionally. But at a certain moment in time, I did pick up more. I was like, oh, forensics is interesting. So I, 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 I studied it a little bit more in my off time, the, the little off time that I had. But it wasn't a focal point. Um, but yeah, you do that for, uh, I did that for almost eight years. Um, did a lot of great stuff. I actually had a reunion uh, last week uh, with my old coworkers. So that was really, really fun to see. And I've been gone for more than 10 years, 10 to 12 years. And it's like, it feels like almost like time was standing still. You come there and it's like, I left yesterday, but at the same time, it's already 12 years ago. Everybody got a little bit older, a little bit grayer, a couple of more wrinkles. But yeah, you come at that point in life where you're like, okay, do I want to keep on doing this? It's great. It's a lot of fun, but I still have a science degree. Um, do I want to do something with computer science? And at the time I always, we were, hung, we were chasing down or trying to make the world a safer place and chasing down some really, really bad people in the world. But at the same time, having the knowledge from the digital uh, point of view, from the, the cyber point of view. I, I did realize like, hey, there's a, things are changing. This is gonna have a bigger impact than we're thinking. It's not only your computers from your mom and dad's those viruses, no. This is where countries are gonna attack countries. This is gonna be embedded in mo modern warfare. Well, fast forward now, we have a war in Ukraine and everybody sees it, front page news, and cyber and kinetic warfare are very much uh, combined. But at the time that was like unheard of. Uh, nobody was thinking about that stuff, but I tried to have some talks within uh, the units that I was, and they were like, yeah, that's great, but there's not really anything. Uh, and it kind of made me decide like, okay, if I want to pursue this and I think I have my degree, I really want to focus on this. I had to pursue it. Um, yeah. My career elsewhere outside of the, uh, the military at that time. So at that point you transitioned out of the military, but went into law enforcement. So you uh, joined the police. Uh, in the Netherlands and the high-tech crime area specifically around forensics. What were those first steps like? Because, you know, looking at the timeline here, this was around 2014, I believe. So this is sort of right at the start of ransomware. Yeah, so I first joined the the Dutch police, the, the organized crime teams. So you can, like, compare it to the FBI or the NCA. It was mostly focused on organized crime, drug trade, and all these things. And I applied to become a digital forensic specialist. Um, which was very interesting. It predominantly was about a lot of post-mortem forensics, mm -hmm. uh, examining phones, computers, all data carriers to find evidence or pieces of evidence that could tie the criminal to the case. Uh, so if you find a USB drive full of photos of copious amounts of, uh, let's say, package of cocaine and you find the criminal in the same picture, well, you got a smoking gun. That's great. Nowadays, you don't know, right? Because it could be AI-generated photos, but back in the day, it was a, you know, a pretty good deal if you forensically could prove that it was his and his photos. But um, yeah, I, I, I applied for that job, which was a, a very interesting process. The team was really cool. We had uh, we we did a lot of our own observations, a lot of own cases and all that stuff. 
And eventually I transitioned in uh, around 2014, just after the um, MH17 disaster. The, so the, the plane that got shot down in Ukraine, I transitioned into the Dutch high-tech crime team. And uh, the Dutch high-tech crime team was at that time expanding. It was growing. Uh, it started off with about not even 30 people in the basement. And now it, it became like four times the size. So we had 120 to 130 people. And they, they grew. So I was one of the technical supervisors of one of the, um, the teams and our focus area was ransomware. And at the time, ransomware was very consumer focused. It was very much towards the end consumer. So you, the, the, the stories you might know is like, oh, I lost my yearbook photos or my project, or you have pictures of a loved one that are gone and all these things. So, uh, when we spoke to uh, organizations and companies, they were like, ah, yeah, it's just a single machine and then we'll re-image it and we'll back to the business, which is the, yeah, the encryption works, but the delivery method was a little different and there was less human effort behind it as we know now with the more human operated ransomware or the big game uh, hunting or fishing type of families. Yeah, they really targeted organizations, but yeah, I focused on ransomware, uh, not only uh, doing investigations, so we, we helped uh, take down uh, with the team. It was really cool. Uh, one of the first real, I believe, ransomware arrests, there was a coin fold. Uh, was a really interesting case. And eventually that led us to, in that case, what it made interesting is not only that we found out who did it, we were able to arrest them, they confessed, but in the lead up towards the actual investigation, uh, it was really cool that we could obtain the decryption keys. And at that time, that was something that was relatively new and um, relatively um, unchattered waters for the police because all of a sudden you have keys to all these thousands of victims all over the globe. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to send them an email like, hey, where did Dutch police? We got the key to your files. They're already being hacked and they're already being extorted. So that might, that might not go down so well. So we were like, okay, maybe we need to work with the private sector. And that was actually the very first start that we did at the office. And it's not only me, it's the whole team. And it's the, like, there's multiple people involved in multiple private sectors that start with the first decryptor. And that eventually gave way to no more ransom because we did it one time with the team or with our unit. And we're like, well, what if we get more private entities and we get Europol involved and we, we make this into a bigger thing that is actually, that could work. And, uh, and that worked out really well. And that led to the launch of no more ransom, I think uh, a year, a year and a half later. And for those listening, you know, if you're not familiar with this project, you really should check it out because it's a fantastic resource that's out there. The No More Ransom Project, I believe they have around 36 plus tools now that can help you rescue files from some of the, the common mm -hmm. uh, ransomware strains, especially the kind of the more home targeting ones, like you say, it's you know the, the sort of lower end ones that cause people issues. I believe they've had over 10 million downloads of the decryption tool since beginning. And I personally know several people who've managed to recover files from using these tools. So fantastic resource that's out there. And do you just want to tell people a little bit more about what else the project does other than just the decryption tools? Oh yeah, totally. It's, um, and, and mind you, I'm not as involved, um, with the project anymore because we, I transitioned over to Trellex and there's some, some other stuff going on. So, but at the same time, it offers a lot of prevention advice for anyone. Um, so that's the preventative advice. Well, if you could prevent yourself being targeted, 
that's already a win. If you are impacted by ransomware, it can help you define or determine what the ransomware family is and if there is a decryptor. And uh, it will help you point yourself or point you in the right direction to file a police complaint. So if you don't know where to go, you don't know what is useful for a police complaint, if you want to file a report, it will tell you, okay, these items are important for the police report. So it will help you on that way. And what is interesting is like, what I really like is like, yes, it, it, it has a lot of these lesser known families. Cause let's face it. If you're, if, if, if you're a criminal and you're a ransomware criminal, encryption is hard. It's really hard. So what we often see is that these, uh, groups, they're trying to, um, build a ransomware empire and they make mistakes. They make mistakes in their encryption. They use a static key or they use something else. And that allows researchers to kind of crack their encryption and build a decryptor for these uh, families, which is then launched on Noma Ransom. But going back like two weeks ago, I think uh, Avast announced that there's a key or ransomware that they have a decryptor for one virus. So there's still decryptors being launched. And after uh, large investigations, like the re-evil one or the gang crap investigation, when uh, a group of private entities together with law enforcement find a decryption method, they will build a decryption tool and still launch it. And um, believe it or not, even the GANCRAP tool that was built for the platform was used quite a bit. And GANCRAP was targeting not only individuals, but also organizations. So there's still, there's still a, a, a good element of value. And I, I still um, uh, heavily support the platform wherever I can, because a lot of people don't know about it. You think like we've been around, that's been around for about like five, six years. And they saved a total of almost 1 billion. That's the estimate of $1 billion in, in, in extortions. That's phenomenal. But yeah, the more people who know about it, the better it can get. And it's a nice example of the private sector working together. We aren't seeing private companies out there trying to monetize decryption tools or anything like that. People are just doing it for the, the greater good and bringing resources to bear on it. So that, that's a real positive for that project for me, I think. Oh, totally. That was, uh, that was one of the, that was a non-negotiable when we started this. It's like, listen, we do this because we think this is a problem and we're doing this, uh, um, not because of financial gain. And yes, there is a promotion element for every party that is involved, which is fair, which is, which is all right. Uh, if they build a phenomenal decryptor, they should get the credit for it. But what you're not doing is selling the decryptor to people because that is profiting from somebody who's already in a very dire situation. And that's the last thing you should do. And in terms of getting this out there and putting it out in the world and leading the way in some of these things, like you said, you know, the Dutch police were involved in some of the first, um, you know, ransomware takedowns. Why do you think that that team in particular was basically leading the world in a lot of ways in, in taking the fight to the ransomware operators? Yeah, that's, I've been asked that question quite a bit. Um, and it's not that we have the most victims in the world, because if you look at the statistics, even the statistics that we put out in our quarterly threat report and all these things, we see that the most targeted country is still the US uh, by far. Um, however, if you, if you peel it down a layer lower, you would see that a lot of uh, criminals require infrastructure. They require infrastructure to either host a malware, to host a command and control servers, all that stuff. And, and what's important, if you want to operate on a global level, you want to have something that's reliable, that's cheap, that's fast, and no questions asked, or that there's like 
um, in a in a nice country that it's easy to pay. Um, I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing, but the Netherlands is typically known to be having a lot of it's a, it's a very good hosting environment. So our country is has a good infrastructure, uh, very stable internet, very fast internet because a lot of the uh, transatlantic cables just like they come out of the water here. Um, everything is really nicely controlled. Like we have greenhouses, but we also have data centers. So what it allows you to is built this, this whole climate. And it's not only malicious, but it's all over. There's a lot of hosting in the Netherlands. So it's, it's like all the larger cloud providers have data centers here as well. So what you would see is that there's a, um, there's a hosting climate with a lot of companies that are offering rec space or virtual servers and all these things. And they would have the, the, the resellers or the people renting the rec space, they would start their own company. And that could actually be a company somewhere else abroad, but physically they're in the Netherlands, like physically located. So what you would see is that there's all these like LLCs or there's these like companies in the Seychelles or in the Maldives or in Dubai or all over the place, but physically the actual system is located in the Netherlands. So what that um, cost or what, what, the, what the consequences is that a lot of these malicious systems were here as well. And that's interesting because there's a, there's a legislation which we have is, and I think the hosting provider is not being hold held liable for the content that's on the system. They just need to adhere to the notice and takedown. So that kind of like, if they don't know, they, they, they yeah, it's like that you cannot blame the telephone company for somebody making like a death threat through the phone. That's, that's the kind of the reasoning in a, in a short, um, short, short, short way to sum it, so, summarize it. So that it's kind of a blessing and a curse. So the, the curse is that yes, there's a lot of bad hosting that comes here. Uh, the blessing is that's great because we have good police as well. They can act really fast and they're always on top of stuff. So what you would see from the start of the Dutch high tech crime unit, there were a lot of requests coming in from all over the globe to either confiscate, seize, or wiretap one of these servers that are being hosted here. And so the police would go out and they would either put the wiretap on, image the machine or whatever. And that kind of pulls the Dutch police into any investigation that was ongoing. And that's, it's crazy, but there's so much, um, hosting that like, I barely can't remember a case that we weren't involved in. So like, if you look at all the takedowns at the time and that right now as well, you see that the Dutch police always has a certain spot. And that's, th that's just shows you that that hosting element for cyber criminals is such a vital importance. And I'd much rather have it here that we can control it and we can have some kind of, and it's not a, uh, this is not a warning to all the criminals out there, but it's, but it's kudos to that team that can actually facilitate and they can, they can make a difference by, uh, wiretapping, doing the analysis and all the kinds of things. And that kind of combines with a progressive mindset. Cause you could, yeah, you can be like leaning back and just waiting for everything to come in. But at the same time, seeing that, hey, we're on this like gigantic pool of data and bad stuff, why don't we set up a unit that can also be proactive about this and not only responsive to either the MLAT requests that come in, the, the requests from other uh, nation states or uh, from our victim complaints, but really look at what is happening in the cyber criminal underground, what is happening in this eco-climate, and can we identify... Uh, certain services that are being offered or certain 
certain families or certain groups that are playing a pivotal role in this, this, um, this eco-climate and can we target those proactively? Yeah. And that really like changed the, the, the way. So if you see the Emotet work that they did recently, uh, I was already uh, gone, but you can see it with uh, the VPN takedowns. They're constantly looking for things that are connecting multiple investigations. So they, they look for that common denominator. What is that service? What's that operation that really facilitates to multiple crime groups? Because if you take that out or you gather information from there, that can actually help progress all these different separate cases. And that, that's a really interesting perspective on it because from the outside, I think a lot of people sometimes look at these takedowns and think kind of like, so what? They've taken out one thing, but cyber criminals will pop up someone else. Whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole, inevitably they will. But actually the way you're describing it there, there's a lot more tactics behind it and you're actually maximizing the impact of every single one of those takedowns and making sure you're maximizing your resources there. Obviously, there's always an element of whack-a-mole, but if you, if, you, if you have a little bit more of a, we call it the helicopter view, you, you zoom out, you hover above, and you see like, okay, what's the common denominator? Then you, could, um, you can allocate your resources to use them for the best method. So, and you will see this, if you, if you watch the news, you will see this happening. So um, when it comes to ransomware, if you look at the International Ransomware Task Force, one of the really, really good tactics is follow the money. So you're seeing now from law enforcement, not only the, the Dutch, but the FBI and all the parties involved and the NCA and everyone else, there is an active um, involvement going after the money. So malicious exchanges and all that stuff, because these criminals are in it for the money. If you can take away the money or you can trace the money, you know who's behind it. So that has been very helpful. You saw that the, um, the FBI was able to do it with uh, DarkSide with some of the colonial pipeline data, uh, money that was, uh, that was paid and they were able to confiscate it. And I think also re-evil, uh, the FBI was able to, uh, freeze and confiscate, uh, $2.3 million from one individual affiliate, uh, successfully. Well, let's jump into re-evil because it's a, a really good example because, you know, you've worked on the No More Ransomware project. You've done various things in the, the police high-tech crime team. Uh, you've moved into industry in Trellix, but no matter what you're working on in terms of law enforcement or industry, there's this common theme that you're using your skills and your experience to put pressure on threat actors to take out those critical bits of infrastructure. And, you know, a great notable example of that is taking on the cybercrime empire of Reevil. And if you go onto YouTube and put your name in, some of the things you've come back with is talks from 2019, 2020, where you were talking about tracking this threat actor, reading through now to blogs on the Trellix website where you're still talking about this. So tell me how you came to be involved in, in tracking re-evil. Yeah, that was a interesting story. It actually started with Gantcrap, uh, before 20, in 2018, 2019. Um, we had a couple of customers of us got hit. Um, and we were looking at this ransomware family and also because they were very overt, uh, on the forums, they were, they're like beating their chest and they're, they're boasting and they were really proud of themselves. And we're like, okay, what's going on here? Um, and we already knew that some of the law enforcement entities were interested in this. So we, we saw it as interesting. We had a customers, some customers being impacted, uh, and we had, uh, law enforcement and other, other companies also interested. So, um, we kind of internally have, we call it a quadrant methodology to define, okay, these are interesting subjects to focus on. And this hit the bingo chart. So we had all the, all the elements of the quadrant was hit. So, uh, 
and one of our researchers and they started to look and it's like, whoa, how, where do you start? Where do you start finding the elements or the weaknesses or whatever? And they were doing things really well. They were actually, we, 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 we like the summarize of for, especially for re-evil, but when you fast forward, we had to study the success to find out where they made the mistakes. So how can we use the things that we're doing well against them? So they were doing some really good marketing externally, but also internally on the forum. So, okay, we have access on the forums. We're going to study their marketing. We're going to study who is responding to it, who is, uh, who is giving them thumbs up, negative, positive, who is saying that they've joined and then monitor or mark those monikers date and time. And at the same time, there was another thing that they did really well was, um, and this is, this goes back to, uh, one of the success factors that we determine if, if a cyber criminal group, especially ransomware group will grow to a certain size, if they become really successful and that's building trust or loyalty and loyalty in the underground, um, that's mostly built on paying the people that you work with, what they are owed. So, uh, Gantrap, but also re-evil, they're the same group, make no mistake. The, the masterminds behind it are the same. Uh, and now there's a new re-evil, which is, uh, uh, we believe actually essentially different, but, uh, if you, in order to build this empire where you have all these partnerships and people working for you, like the, the ransomware as a service, where there's affiliates actually doing the infiltration and the data exfiltration, and the extortion, you need a way of, uh, administrating or you need to have an administration that defines which infection, so which victim and the amount of money that they paid is tied to which affiliate. So who is responsible for which attack? You build loyalty by paying people what they're owed and Revil and Gankrep did that really well. So we were examining these binaries, the actual malware. And what we've noticed was there was an indicator in the binary. There was an indicator that had a numeric value and we're like, what can that be? And it was part of a configuration file. So I was working with one of our uh, lead reversers and they're like, well, this is interesting. Why don't we, and because we're like a large vendor, we have access to a lot of these samples. Why don't we go hunt for more of these Gankrab and Reevil samples or Gankrab at a time and see what we, what we'll find out, what will we find out if we pull those numbers from everything? And that was really fascinating because essentially what we were doing, we were doing some forensic accounting because those numbers represented the actual, the, the individual partner or the affiliate. And they, there was another number that represented the attack that they did. So by pulling all these numbers from all these binaries, we could actually see which affiliate was the most active. And then combining that with the underground research and all that stuff gave us phenomenal insights of what is going on. So we knew who were your top performers, um, and who were actually lagging behind and we could match that with underground conversations. Uh, we did some other stuff on their conversation and their, their, the communication that is not public yet, but that essentially helped us examine who is calling the shots, who plays what role, who's the most active. And we shared all this knowledge with law enforcement, which inevitably helped with the takedown of, uh, 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 re-evil at the time. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, it's a classic, uh, uh, ransomware as a service story. I think it's probably worth explaining to some of the audience who maybe aren't familiar with, with ransomware as a service there, you know, 
how this ecosystem exists, where people are partnering up with affiliates and how that ransomware as a service model has really changed the game when it's come to ransomware attacks. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's, there's multiple, uh, uh, ways of looking at it and multiple, there could be multiple reasons, right? Uh, one of them is very popular to say, like, well, actually building malware in, uh, like a country that was in the beginning when, when, uh, it was in the beginning stage with CTB locker in 2016, uh, building malware was not a crime they say, but attacking a victim or a victim in your country would be a crime. So what you would often see is that you had these exclude lists and then the, 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 the offer of the malware would often say like, well, I'm not spreading it. Somebody else is. So, and they would focus on building the malware and then the people doing the infiltration or doing the actual infections, they would be focusing on that. And then what you often see is that there's an incentive, either you're on a payroll, uh, which you have, for instance, with Conti ransomware, they just had a real payroll system or you're commission-based. So the more infections you bring or the bigger the ransom demand, the more percentage, like there's often like an 80, 20 or 70, 30 percentage. And that goes 70 or 80% of that, uh, ransom demand goes towards the affiliate. And then the 20 or 30% goes towards the offers. So the offers just have to worry about the ransomware and the affiliates just have to worry about the infection. And that has been proven to be a very strong model, uh, not super strong, but in the time, a pretty strong model. Um, because it, it was, there was a certain hierarchy. So you had the developers were in the top and then you had all your affiliates and the affiliates had to really apply for a job. There was a, there was a, we have numerous job postings and there's interviews. Heck, we even tried to join and we didn't pass through the interview. That was different reasons, but they were very strict about who they let on board because they want to hire the right people. They want to make sure that they have people that can actually, um, get the right amount of infections. Uh, and this was when affiliates, and I'm talking about some, some years back when affiliates were not always as skilled as they are now, because fast forward, if we talk now, there's actually a shift, there's an elementary shift and things like Ukraine, not that the Ukraine war is a catalyst, but you already saw it with Conti and all these splinter groups. So you see that affiliates are getting more and more powerful, uh, and that these affiliates, because they have the ability to take a single login, a credential that they have, or a vulnerability, or from a phishing email, or they buy a commodity malware access, they have that skill set to take that one single low-level user all the way up to domain admin, really, literally exfiltrating the data, having the keys to the kingdom. That ability, that's 90% of the work. The last 10% is that extortion framework is that the tool or the platform where you display the, uh, the data and for the longest time, the balance was on the other side, the balance was with the ransomware family offers and they're really strong and what you now see there's more splinter groups. So the balance is evening out or it's actually shifting in the other direction that you would have groups of affiliates and like, uh, for instance, the offspring from Conti, uh, Karakut, they're only doing uh, extortion through, uh, data theft. So they're trying to leak data. They're not even encrypting. Whereas you have other groups doing encryption, but they might choose this ransomware version now and a different one the other day, because they have, uh, probably better deals or better percentages or whatever. So it's, it's a very interesting how this, this market is kind of shifting and 
Yeah, we, we predicted it some years ago uh, when we, we, we were monitoring Babook and there were some internal struggles where a decryptor didn't work. And that kind of led to like, they got paid, but at the same time, they got into a dispute with the office. And so like, hey, we're doing all the hard work and you're giving us faulty software and we're, we're making a fool out of ourselves. Why do we work with you guys? And you could see that there's cracks in that model and that's now happening uh, at large. And that's the, one of the reasons why you have all these offshoots. There's like, I think this year, in the last year, there's been so many smaller ransomware groups just popping up. And all the code base is either based on Lockbit or Conti code base or Bubbleblow code base. Everybody's reusing code and they're just building their own ransomware group. But these are, in my opinion, a lot of times just splinter cells with affiliates just branching off and doing the thing themselves. And they're like, hey, we can do 90% of the work. Well, then the last 10, we'll just hack something. And if it works, it works. And we'll, we'll make our money. So you've mentioned that the balance of power there on the offensive side where you've got these, you know, Affiliates going out, compromising systems, doing all the lateral movement till they own the network. And then the final stage is deploy the ransomware payload that they get in from ransomware as a service provider there. Now on the defensive side, as, as businesses and organizations, one of the trends I commonly see is mm -hmm. there's a massive focus on that last 10% where people are worried about, you know, the ransomware payload being deployed and are doing all these things to detect ransomware payloads but are maybe not thinking about that 90% where the attacker's gaining a foothold and moving around the organization. So what's your advice to organizations trying to deal with preventing ransomware attacks? Where should they be focusing? Oh, you're spot on, James. Um, even with Trellix, and we're an XDR vendor, so the extended detection and response, that already implies that we're not only doing endpoint, um, but the thing you just said is a very endpoint approach, right? Sure. Is that last, yeah, I, I often make a comparison like, okay, are, if you're going into a firefight, are you going to charge, are, are you going to trust just your bulletproof vest or are you going to your, train yourself in shooting? You're going to have to write gun, you know, your, your landscape, you know, everything around it. And then you know where you, what you're getting into, or you're just walking in and say like, well, I got my bulletproof vest so it's going to help. And that I believe, and, uh, this is not a teaser for what is coming, but we are doing something around ransomware more extensively. So what we are seeing is that a lot of the typical companies that are being targeted are not your big institution. Yes, there are some really, really big victims that you see and they make the headline news, but the large majority are smaller companies. And those are companies that are thrusted predominantly on legacy AV. And you said it very clearly, spot on. You need to be able to detect that lateral movement. The detection opportunity for organizations when it comes to ransomware, and it's not easy. I admit it. It's not easy. It is detecting from that one initial credential that is being used or that volume that's being used all the way up to the domain admin. That domain admin. That is your opportunity to, de to detect it within your network. So that's lateral movement, your data exfiltration, privilege escalation, persistence, uh, remote, uh, uh, backdoor communication, things like that. You need to be able to spot. And that's, that's the tricky part because very often they're using living off the land tools, binary scripts, which are by itself, not malicious. So even Trellix, we're a big vendor. We cannot in our AV, we cannot say, well, PowerShell is malicious. Cause we get like the whole system administrator community over us and they're like, well, why did you block PowerShell? Yeah. I can see the headlines now, but yeah, sometimes PowerShell is used by criminals too. So 
how do you build rules? And that's what we do with XDR and EDR tooling. It's like, how do you define those rules? With, if non-malicious tools are used in a malicious manner with malicious intent, and that's your opportunity that you have. And it's not only that, because that's, now we're talking about detection and response, but I honestly believe it actually is also on the front end. It's about intelligence. It's about understanding the adversary. It's about, as an organization, um, I see a lot of organizations that we, that we face either they're impacted or whatever, they know everything about their, uh, their competition because they only have eyes on the competition and, uh, they know stuff about like certain safety things. But when you talk about like, who is your adversary? Have you done any threat modeling? What's your, uh, what's your fear about ransomware? And they're like, oh, what, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Whereas like, well, this is a real business impact. It could paralyze your business. So if this has such an impact, if it actually materializes and it does, because there's other companies in your industry that have been targeted, why don't you study the threat actor and study how they operate and see if you have the right controls. And if not, well, then it's worth having a conversation. And it's, it's funny. It's not even always about controls. Yeah. You can have the best control, but it's all also about what do we do as an organization? Do we have a plan? Do we have a some kind of checklist do we anyway, do we have it printed out or is it on the computer in a doc file that's going to be encrypted there's all these things do we have a media strategy do we even have cyber insurance there's all these elements that you can think of as an organization and i and i realize it's not always as sexy especially if it's not like you you don't really not a lot of people get energy like us talking about this stuff uh, but yeah it's not it's not their their core business yeah but it is essential because it's, we're talking about business continuation. It's no longer cyber. It has a real impact just on, on like your overall business. And if you look at it that way, then companies start to realize, like, hey, listen, this is a real threat to my operation. This is a real threat to my business actually surviving. So I need to invest time, effort in controls and all those sort of things to understand and mitigate this threat. And one of the things you mentioned before, um, was around those different factions of the sort of cybercrime ecosystem where you have affiliates and ransomware as a service operators. And one of the parts of that is, is that initial access into a business, which was kind of pioneered by a lot of these initial access brokers and things like Genesis Market. I believe that was something you were also involved in uh, looking into Genesis Market and the takedown that followed from that research. Yeah, we uh, Strelix were also involved. That was uh, pretty cool when we got the call. Uh, yeah, Genesis market is a very interesting marketplace. Um, credential marketplaces have been around for multiple years. Uh, we've seen them all from black pass to all the way up to like the RDP shops with, uh, US uh, shop. Um, it's very common that you get credentials and credential theft. And we see info stealers, um, actually now more than ever, there's a lot, uh, but Genesis market, it's been around since 2018. Um, when it came, it was actually a little, um, I wouldn't say refreshing, but it was different, yeah. right? They were like, oh, we deal in, in cookies and plugins and, and browser fingerprints. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty smart. And I didn't, at that time, I didn't realize, or we didn't really understand when they just launched, like what the complete impact of this could have been. And going on and we were on the website and we we're seeing this and I was like, 
by golly, these guys are really there. They, they got it figured out. This is the Achilles heel of a lot of multi-factor authentication because yes, you have all these password sites and whatever, and credentials got stolen and reused and sold. And then people will take on your identity or they will go to your bank or to, uh, well, they order stuff on Amazon for you. And then you would see these online services, as you might say, all these websites and online services take precautions. And some would go very drastic and some, and this is often the thing that you have, there's this balance between uh, a website or an online service being usable versus being secure. And this is this real uh, discussion that's going on between security and sales. It's like, well, we want to have multi-factor authentication, but then sales says, yeah, but that will, that will discourage people and then they will click away. They will not finalize their buy because you have an extra layer of security. And that is where this market profited from. They saw that, I don't know if they saw it already, but that is what happened. So essentially how online services try to mitigate this is that they, yes, they could have a strong multi-factor authentication or they can have multiple ways, but what they then do is like, okay, uh, James, you log in, you use whatever method it is, MFA method or whatever. And then say like, okay, James, we now trust because James has shown who he is. So we'll store in order for him to be like, make it convenient. Let's store some artifacts on his computer and let's take some of these artifacts that is very characteristic for his computer and just store that locally. And then whenever James comes back within a set amount of time that we define and certain websites, it's like a freaking month and other it's like, uh, well, 10 minutes, James does not have to show who he is because he already has those artifacts. And essentially Genesis market was really good, uh, at forming alliances with a lot of commodity malware using their access, launching a malicious, uh, Chrome browser extension that was injected in the victim's Chrome browser, which looked like a normal Chrome extension. And that was basically stealing all these things that make you, you. And they were siphoning them off and were storing and selling them on the website. So you had on this website, mind you, like there were 450,000 active credentials being sold in the showroom, um, by working with the police, cause they asked us to do analysis and help out and whatever. Uh, we learned there were more than 1.5 million back in the, wow. in storage. So that's unbelievable. And that's not single credential. No, that's persona. So that's like any online service and the, that you might have. So we had, there were personas that had like two or three services, but there were others that had like LinkedIn, Twitter, Spotify, uh, Amazon, Netflix, the whole shebang to banks, to even like, uh, uh, government logins, all kinds of stuff or corporate logins as well. And they were selling these off from anything ranging from $6 to 20 to yeah, no, $200 even. Um, and essentially what it could do is that if you're a purchase you purchase it there, either if you're skilled enough, you can load it into your own browser, or you could actually use their proprietary browser that they had. And you could assume the identity of the victim. So yes, in the simplest case, I can start watching movies on your account, but we've had, uh, we looked at some of the users and overlap between, uh, who's mentioning Genesis market and who's also involved in ransomware. And we saw quite some monikers giving good credit to Genesis market, but also being part of a ransomware group. 
So that indicates for us, like, hey, they were using Genesis Market to find these corporate credentials, to log into that company, to say, and then assume that identity and start hacking that company, which inevitably will lead to a ransomware attack. So this is like, yeah, an initial access broker. We all, like on the forums, there's always like individuals offering corporate access, but this was to the next level. This is like, boom, you've got like, you're, we call it almost the Amazon of uh, online credentials. That was a, yeah, it was a real honor that we were able to help assist, take it down, share the samples, do the analysis and uh, help with the mitigation. So a couple of questions on that one, because it's a really fascinating area is, is that being able to take something, the, the token, the browser information, replay that from the attacker's machine and get in. And obviously the rise in, you know, being able to bypass MFA is a, is a huge thing for an attacker. But then the use of like common single sign-on services where it, suddenly the attacker has access to all these cloud applications, all this the rise of SaaS apps mm -hmm. that are out there. So from a business perspective, the attacker can target an organization without ever having to log on to a, in a traditional laptop and endpoint execute code there. They're just going straight into the cloud services where all the data is and extracting that. So how, how do you think businesses yeah. can start to think about that type of risk? Um, a one is understanding it. It's like knowing that it's out there. Um, and the way we've, we've structured our remediation, uh, and mind you, we've published a blog on this as well. It's actually twofold. So it's one, it is, um, um, having proper detection against the way they stole the credentials in your organization. So if you, as an organization, you need to be aware of malicious browser plugins and things like that, because it's a very, um, easy way for criminals to steal, um, uh, their data. So that's one. And then second, it's like, okay, but, and that's the hard part. How do you detect these anomalous logins? And that's where like a lot of these. Uh, login behavior analysis comes in play. Um, Genesis Market had an option to use, for instance, a proxy. So you would proxy through the victim's machine into whatever network, but not always. So those anomalous IPs, that's one. And there's, there's multiple things There could be, um, but that's detecting it. Inevitably, what I would suggest for a lot of companies is have the proper precautions. Like I have to log into multi-factor authentication like every 10 minutes. Um, and if I close my browser, I have to do it again. So having more stricter controls and just accepting the fact that it's harder to do, that's one of the things. Um, and what we also see in that same note is uh, don't use the push notifications as much. We saw that with lapses. They were just bombarding people with push notifications and eventually somebody clicks yes and then they're in. That to me is like, yeah, you have to be very careful with that. So the challenge and the reply thing. So that's, that's, that's something that really helped that, that, yeah, we, we have certain setups for our company. Um, I know, uh, we're a security company, so we're used to having a little bit more stricter control, but this is stuff that you, people need to have maybe a UV key. There could be multiple ways of authenticating yourself. That could be easy, but enforcing it to do more often in a, in a, in a safe way. And like I said, behavioral detection. Uh, and then once somebody has a credential, what kind of behavior is this user doing? Is that behavior, is that normal? Is that allowed? Or is that not normal? And that, yeah, you can act upon it. Yeah, I'm putting my Beyond Trust hat on very momentarily. Concept of least privilege, of course. It's a classic security concept, but if the user has just the privileges they need to be able to do their job, whether that's on the endpoint as a 
removing local admin rights or in the cloud. These are really important things you can do to, you know, stop an attacker being able to exploit those and use them against you. Um, the other part was when you've talked about the Genesis market there, that was an international law enforcement effort to take that down. I think it spanned 17 countries, working with directly with industry partners like Trellix to help do the analysis side of things. From your perspective, how difficult was it working with all those different agencies and, and coordinating that? Or was that something you were quite comfortable and, and used to doing? Uh, well, personally, like, like we've done it before, so it's quite comfortable. Um, our main sparring partner was the, the Dutch police in this case. So they reached out and we, we, we coordinated with them. And um, there was a very strict set of sequence of events. So we knew exactly what we needed to have ready at what moment in time and when we would go live with things. So that was most of the coordination was internal with us to make sure that the web team was not publishing something before we had the okay. But yeah, it was, um, I can imagine from the, I was listening into the police side is like, guys, you, you, you got your work cut out. They started on, I believe Monday in like Australia and they went all over the globe until like Tuesday afternoon through the announcement. I was like, the last thing you want to worry is about us. So just give us, okay, these moments in time, just give me a phone call. Okay, John, you can publish X or you can do this. So we had, there were certain phases like, uh, publish the samples that we got from law enforcement, uh, make them known in our system, share them on the, in the community and publish them on virus total. That was one of the phases that. Um, we got a call and then we initiated that. And then we gave a call back. Okay, listen, we done it. And then the, uh, another phase was, uh, published a blog and the blog would come after the press announcement, but yeah, obviously the splash screen was already there. So people got nervous internally, like, oh, the splash screen is out. We need to post like, no, 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 no. Hold. We don't have our orders. We get a phone call and then we can publish. And then there's like, okay, you can publish. And then we published. So then. Needed a little coordination, but not not too much. But it was uh, it was doable. It's not the first rodeo we did. And when you're working on these operations, you've mentioned the technical analysis, like with uh, Reevil, to identify different affiliates and different campaigns that they were running. Do you get to work the human intelligence side of things as well? Do you get sources within these? You've mentioned that you're on these forums. You're trying to you know approach them to become an affiliate and things like that. Do you ever get human sources that can help you? You know, get a, a foothold in these organizations and a better understanding. Uh, yes, but we're not always going to disclose that. No, we, we, we have multiple sources to our disposal. We have people that speak, uh, languages fluently and, uh, we often try to be a fly on the wall, but if we need to engage, we can. Um, and that's a very interesting part of the job as well. But yeah, it's also challenging because how far can you engage without committing a crime? Yeah, of course. But we have, uh, we have. We have safeguards and, and procedures and all that stuff, but we can't engage if we need to. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, a lot of these splinter groups are just reusing oldest or variants of malware that are known that have had the source code stolen. So it always interests me within these scenes, how quick sometimes the affiliates or ransomware operators will turn against each other, reveal information that then, you know, targets the competition. So it, it seems like a really fascinating world to be working in. Yeah. If you do not pay your, uh, your dues, you don't pay your debts, then people will turn against you. And it's not like they go to the HR department, they snitch and they, um, they will give information out to either the security industry or to the police or whatever. So yeah, we had a snitch for re-evil, uh, or snitch an individual that reached out and gave some very interesting and vital information that helped 
uh, law enforcement uh, locate the C2 server together with our other research. But together with me, there's uh, Fabian Losart. He has a, a, a Jabber account. Uh, and he says actively like, hey, if you want to, if you're fed up, if you want to just share information, feel free to reach out to me and you can chat me on my uh, Jabber account. And I'm not going to report you to the police, but we'll just use whatever it is uh, for good. So there's, 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 a, there's a fair amount of people uh, spilling the beans or, or yeah, getting a change of heart, let's put it that way. Uh, and then uh, from the, I think from the industry, but also law enforcement is very eager to use that. Um, and right now they've put some really, really big bounties out, like tens of millions of dollars, which might interest some other people as well. Um, we're nearly out of time today, but just a, a couple of final questions if you've got time. You've got the role now as head of threat intelligence at Trellix. That seems like a, a very large and broad responsibility. How do you decide what to focus on from a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So that quadrant methodology that I explained, that's one of our core things. Uh, we have, a within our advanced research center that we have, we work very closely together with our product teams. So we have product research teams that look at telemetry from our products that see like, Hey, something got triggered. Uh, we try to investigate. Uh, we talk a lot to our customers. Um, we try to get understanding of like what keeps them up at night. And we do the same with law enforcement and uh, the public sector that we talk to the national surge. Um, part of the research that we do is, well, we, we do research and it goes into our products or we, um, have our own intelligence products, but we also deliver intelligence services. So what the team does, uh, we gather intelligence and all this knowledge and we put it and package it up and, um, that's, that's provided to our customers, either RFI based or in an intelligence platform. So there's multiple ways how our customers are disseminating this. And it depends, like if a customer has an RFI a request for something, uh, we will go out and do the research for them, um, help them out in their problem. But yeah, it's a, it's a lot of ground to cover. Um, and I can have a million people, but then there's still be ground to cover, right? It's, it's almost, uh, too much. And, um, I'm just interested how you think that, uh, your early career in the Marines set you up for your career in cyber. What were the transferable skills that you you think you brought to industry? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I think some of the transferable skills is that can do attitude that sometimes you do not always have the best situation, the best tools and things at hand, but you're going to make the most out of it. And you just, uh, you develop along the way and a bit of perseverance and grit that you don't want to give up, that you you're constantly seeking, uh, to find that next mistake, same way, working in a, in a good team together, um, having that team culture and that drive to, um, uh, help uh, whoever is you defending, that could be an organization, it could be a nation, it could be whatever against bad individuals. So there's bad people going after you and it could be in the military or whatever, but having that, that drive that, that you don't even want to call a passion, but at the same time, yeah, there is a, a definite drive towards, okay, there are bad people trying to do people harm. Okay. We have an opportunity to stop them. Okay. Let's use the tools that we have to our disposal to make that uh, situation better for our customers or for society. So that's like next to coffee in the morning, but that's the stuff that gets me out of bed.
And then look into the future. What are the things that you think we need to be thinking about over the next five, 10 years or so in the world of cybersecurity? Oh, that's a great one. That's a good one to end on, by the way. Um, there's a lot of things. Um, AI, obviously. We cannot mention AI without doing it. Um, another one that I think is we've seen in the recent years having a big impact is the software supply chain or supply chain attacks. We can, sure. I think the first phase will be that we are going to secure the supply chain, that we're having a good grips on that. But then there's the underlying software libraries and links and repositories that um, are going to have, that we're going to have challenges with. We saw it with Log4j, with other things. So uh, maybe there will become a rat race between productors trying to leverage malicious libraries versus uh, us trying to secure them. So those are things that um, are definitely top of mind for us. Well, that's great. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on uh, this week's episode. So I'd like to thank our fantastic guest, John Focker, for sharing his journey with us today. From counterterrorism and marine warfare to threat intelligence and dark web markets, John's made a career of being on the front lines of all aspects of security there. I'd particularly like to thank John for the work he did on the No More Ransomware project, as I know a number of people as I said earlier, who've been able to actually rescue their data, recover their data, and not just data, but like you said earlier, family photos and memories that they thought had been taken from them. So really appreciate all the work that went into that project. And we're really looking forward to seeing what Criminal Empire John tackles next. As always, thanks to Super Producer Ben and the great people at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.